Welcome to The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. Hello, and thank you, as always, for listening to The Next Track. This is episode number 49, and before we get into things, we want to thank you for your comments on the show and suggestions for future topics. We have a contact form at the website, thenexttrack.com, that you can use to write in, and we know it works because we actually have some feedback today. Yeah, Henry wrote in on episode 47, 10 Ways to Connect Your Computer to Your Stereo, and he said, I'd like to hear more about Apple TV and streaming iTunes Match Music. This podcast pricked my interest in connecting my iMac to my receiver or using my Apple TV 3. This is a topic we've been planning to discuss, and, and I hope we can do this in the coming weeks. We'll talk about AirPlay and Bluetooth, Chromecast, and, and even things like Sonos and other ways of streaming music in your home. It is a way of connecting to your stereo indirectly. And, and as I mentioned, the way that I connect to my stereo in my office is technically streaming AirPlay to the receiver, which is connected via Ethernet over a Powerline adapter. And just for a quick mention, Jeff wrote in and pointed out that Powerline Communications has been around for eons. He remembered it as a kid some 60 years ago, yikes, where it was used in the theater for intercoms. I have a feeling that's what they used in apartment buildings for intercoms, isn't it? I suppose it could have been. I know when I was a kid, I was friends with some people who lived in a, in a big three-story house, and they had an intercom system that they had bought from Radio Shack, of all places, and each of these devices was plugged into a wall outlet on each floor, and the audio traveled through the internal electrical power lines of the house. Yeah, but that's audio over the power line as opposed to data over the power line, so it's not quite the same, but it's still electronic information that's going over the unused part, the unused spectrum, I guess it's what it's called in the power line. Right. So anyway, um, along with the feedback, we do get topic suggestions and questions, and a lot of that sort of thing is about iTunes. And you know, when we were first developing this podcast and talking about how we wanted to, to do it, we knew we didn't want to do a weekly thing about iTunes. I think we'd be able to talk about iTunes for a year. Um, because there are so many things to talk about. But we didn't want to make this an iTunes podcast. Exactly. And, well, because we're interested in a lot more musically than just iTunes. But because of who we are, we knew that people would sort of expect an episode every now and then about <laughs> iTunes. Well, this is that episode. So today we wanted to talk about some common misconceptions about how iTunes works. Doug and I both get lots of emails from readers, from people who use this software, questions about how to use iTunes. I'm trying to do this. How do I do it? And in some cases, it's just, well, yeah, there's this workaround that, you know, Doug or I know because we've been doing it for years, but it's not the kind of thing people would think of. But in some cases, there are things that you simply can't do. And what we've noticed over the years is that there are a number of things that people think iTunes does that are based on the idea that iTunes is different from what it is. Let me just give an example. I, I've, got a, uh, I've got a slogan here. I should put this on a logo on a t-shirt. And it's the most important thing you need to keep in mind to understand iTunes. Here it is. Are you ready? iTunes is just a database. That's about it. We could wrap up the episode now, but it'll obviously take some explaining. When you look at iTunes, you see all sorts of pretty pictures or lines and you see text and you see icons and you see album artwork and you can play music and you can play movies and you can sync things. But 
The organizational part of iTunes, the bit that keeps all your music files in place, that lets you make playlists, that lets you sync them, is nothing more than a database. It simply finds the file paths of the individual files on your hard drive or your SSD or your network drive. It reads the metadata that's embedded in these files, and it displays that data just like a database. The analogy I like to use is that iTunes is pretty similar to a contacts app or, or any address book app, actually. It stores information about individual items, people, or music tracks. And I can arrange and organize these items in various ways. And each of those items has a set of properties, first name and last name and phone number for address book items and song name, artist, album, and that sort of thing for iTunes. And they both have an address to the item the entry represents so I can find it. In Contacts app, of course, it's a literal street address. But in iTunes, it's a file path. And just like how there are no actual people in my Contacts app, there are no audio files in iTunes. For example, when I click on Kirk's Contacts entry, I'm not literally clicking on Kirk, if you can imagine such a thing, if you can imagine a mouse coming out and touching him on the head. Um, in the same way, when I click on a track entry in iTunes, I'm not clicking on any audio. I'm clicking on an interface item that represents a track entry in the database. And iTunes knows what track entry I've clicked on. It gets the file path from that entry in the database. It goes and it grabs the audio data and, by some miracle, plays the audio information. But the misconception I run up against all the time is that people actually think that the files are somehow actually inside the iTunes application. And that's not true. They're, of course, in the iTunes media folder. And a corollary of this is I get emails from people and they say, well, I've got a big library. It's 500 gigabytes. iTunes doesn't care how big your library is. You could have a bunch of MP3 files at, at 32K and you could have 50,000 of them and they could take up, I'm just guessing here, 50 gigabytes or whatever. Or you could have lossless high resolution files and movies in HD and all that. And I mean, my iTunes media folder is about one and a half terabytes, but that's not the size of your iTunes library. The size of your iTunes library is the number of items in it. Now, this is important because above a certain size, the library can slow down iTunes. There are a number of reasons why. One of them is if you have a lot of smart playlists. Every time you change something in iTunes, iTunes has to recalculate the results of all the smart playlists. A smart playlist is nothing more than a database query that's matching the conditions that you've set. So when you think of the size of your library, don't look at the media folder. In fact, here, here's a tip for everyone. You should never even look at your iTunes media folder. You should ignore it. You want to make sure you, you back it up. You want to make sure it's, it's in a location that iTunes can find it and all that. It's important. But you shouldn't touch it. Just leave it alone. Yeah, this is where the problems can really start. You should never have to access these media files. There are exceptions, of course. But you don't need to access the files because iTunes is managing them for you, and it's got its own idea about how things should be done. Now, a common issue is when you may want to move your iTunes media folder to a new, larger location. You might think that just moving the folder to a new drive or partition and then just telling iTunes where it is in the Advanced Preferences tab is all you have to do. But that is actually backwards. You need to tell iTunes where you want the folder to be first, and then iTunes will move the files for you iTunes knows the original location of the files, and then it also knows where you want to move them. And when it does it, 
It then updates its database with the new locations of the files it just moved. You don't have to worry about anything. The misconception here is thinking that iTunes behaves like a document application that can open any file anywhere, but iTunes is a database application that expects the media files to always be in a certain place. There are two preferences in iTunes that are relatively important, and it's worth understanding what they do and why you would want to change them. So if you go to iTunes preferences in the advanced tab, the first one is keep iTunes media folder organized. Now what this does is it tells iTunes to create a series of folders with artist and then album. For movies, it creates a folder for each movie. For TV series, it creates a folder for each series with a subfolder for each season, etc. It names the files according to the disc number, the track number, and the song title, and it keeps the files in this sort of organization. Now, a lot of people, for some reason, don't like this. They don't want iTunes to organize their files. They're afraid that iTunes is going to do something to the files. Now, I, I tend to see this among Windows users who are used to the old days when they would have to drag a folder of MP3 files onto an older MP3 player. iTunes is a database, but it can also organize files on your disk. And why wouldn't you want iTunes to do it? It puts them in a logical place, and you really, really don't need to know where they are. You don't. You don't need to look in that folder. Worst case, if you can't find a file, you may have to navigate into that folder. Or if you want to copy files for some other reason to give to someone the actual files, you might want to do it. But let iTunes organize the files. It makes an awful lot more sense, and it, it can eliminate tons of problems you can have when you move files around manually. You know, if you have to make a copy of an iTunes file for use somewhere else... You can just select and drag a track out of iTunes onto the Finder, and iTunes will copy the file to where you've dragged it. It's been around forever. Um, another exception, some users of DJ software, which don't always interface very well with iTunes, find that they uh, have to arrange their iTunes libraries differently. So they might not want to let iTunes automatically arrange the library. But one of the reasons iTunes needs a dedicated media folder is because it needs to place is because it needs a place to put files that you've purchased, files ripped from a CD, files that you've converted, podcasts, Apple Music ads. See, iTunes never asks you where you want to save a file that you're adding because it always puts these kinds of files into the iTunes media folder. Uh, Doug, you alluded to something else, a second preference there. There's another checkbox in the advanced preferences. It says copy files to iTunes media folder when adding to library. Now, you were saying that some people might not want to do this because they've got DJ software. And this is another cause of problems that people don't do this. They want to leave their files in a specific location. And so you add them to iTunes, say you drag them to the iTunes window or to a playlist window or something, and iTunes finds them. And you've got them where they are, but you may move them at some point later, and iTunes doesn't know that you've moved them. So iTunes loses the files, you get frustrated, you can't find them, you break your computer, and you <laughs> give up on iTunes. And, and this, is, this is really the cause of a lot of frustration. People blame iTunes for this sort of thing when you should simply just let iTunes do what it's designed for. It's to be a database and to manage your files so you don't have to. A misunderstanding by users that I run into is the concept of album. This is part of my theory about the paradigm shift from going from albums to tracks. The old style vinyl or CD album has been disintegrated into individual tracks, right? That's the result of digitizing the individual tracks. But there seems to be an idea that 
iTunes knows what an album is. An album in iTunes is simply a batch of tracks that have the same text in an album tag. Now I have 17 tracks in my library that have Abbey Road as their album tag, and therefore those tracks comprise an album named Abbey Road. It's not like iTunes is aware of an album by the Beatles named Abbey Road that is supposed to have certain tracks associated with it. In fact, if, if I were to edit every track in my library so that its album name was Abbey Road, I would have one album with a lot of track ones and track twos and multiple artists and that sort of thing, which is kind of ridiculous, but I think you see my point. Now, I'm often asked if there's a way with Apple Script to locate albums that have missing tracks, but like I said, there's no canonical reference that iTunes uses to know that. So if you rip a CD with iTunes, so let's say you rip Abbey Road, it's got 17 tracks, iTunes will populate the track number tag one, two, three, four, et cetera. But the track number of tag will be 17. So it'll be track one of 17, track two of 17, and so on. That's the only case that you could find if you're missing a track from an album. You could compare with AppleScript, presumably, this album has this many tracks, how many are there, which one's missing, right? You could do that. But otherwise, as Doug says, if you don't have that track of number tag, there's no way you can know how many tracks are supposed to be in an album. Right. The issue here is, well, I should say the lesson here is that accurate tagging is always a must. If you have errant spaces or misspellings in tags, or not every track has a track count, that's that of number you were talking about, the track count. There's no 100% way to estimate how many tracks from albums are missing, let alone what knowing what their names might be. And you can't use Apple Script to compare information at the store or on Apple Music. Unfortunately. Yeah. But, you know, it's interesting that you bring up this question because we've discussed this in the past. For some reason, I've lost the first tracks of a number of albums in iTunes. Just the first tracks, just eight or ten albums over the years. Each time it's the first track. And even if I go back in my time machine backup, I can't find it. Now, my time machine backup goes back a certain amount of time you know, older backups eventually get deleted. So it's kind of strange. And some of these are albums that I've purchased, some are albums that I've ripped. So I've never really understood. And and I would have liked to find a way to scan all my albums to find which ones are missing first tracks. Now, you could eventually do that by looking for, let's see, could you do this? Find any album name that has a track two and find if there's also a track one. You could do that. Yes, you could do that with Apple Script, but it's it's a bit less of a problem because you know you're always looking for a specific track, the first one. Yeah. And I think you probably might have to deal with a few false positives, but something that simple you could do with Apple Script. Of course, what I'm talking about is attempting to find an arbitrary and unknown number of any tracks belonging to an album. Yeah. But remember, iTunes is just a database, and one of the advantages of Apple Script is that you can make these advanced queries. And so... To, to talk about the database, we go back to smart playlists, which I mentioned earlier, which are a really powerful tool in iTunes. You can use a smart playlist, for instance. You want to find all of the tracks that are four or five stars by your favorite artist and that are from the 1970s. And you can construct a really complicated smart playlist, which is essentially a database query, and get the results of it and play it. And, and this is one of the powerful tools in iTunes. And I'm not sure that other media players do this as well, if at all. I think we've mentioned on numerous occasions that uh, smart playlists are probably one of the best features invented for iTunes. Yeah. A quick interlude about one of my favorite iTunes features, and I know it's one of yours too. It's called Genius Shuffle. Oh, yeah. 
iTunes has this pretty interesting feature called Genius. And what it does is it analyzes your music and somehow it, it must apply some sort of a unique ID to each song, to each song that it recognizes. And you can get Genius, you can right click and you can get Genius suggestions, right? So tracks that you could play that are similar to the track in question that you've selected. And you can start a Genius playlist from any track like that. Well, almost any track, not everything's recognized in Genius. And this is a nice idea. Let's say you want to listen to, you know, your favorite David Bowie song and you start a genius playlist and you'll get some, I don't know, Brian Eno and Led Zeppelin and Queen and other, you know, similar types of music from, from similar periods. Genius Shuffle takes this one step further. You press the Option or Alt key and the space bar at the same time. iTunes essentially pulls a track at random from your library and creates a genius playlist with it. Yeah, I think Genius is Apple's answer to Pandora, which also built a playlist based on a uh, selected seed track. So there are times when iTunes will lose track of the location of the iTunes media folder. And we did an episode about hosting your iTunes library on a network device. And this is a case where iTunes can lose track of where it's hosted because if the network volume isn't mounted, iTunes doesn't know that it's supposed to be there. But when this happens, then you get these dead tracks. Now, sometimes this happens because you've moved something. Don't touch that iTunes media folder. But in other cases, iTunes will lose the location of a track because the track is missing, because the folder's missing, because you have a permissions issue. There are a number of reasons. Yeah, dead tracks are a pretty serious issue, and I hope no one has to experience it. Um, I have several scripts that will help with dead tracks and orphan files, and there'll be a link in the show notes to a YouTube video I've posted that explains this phenomena a little bit. Essentially, dead tracks are track entries in iTunes for which iTunes can't locate the file. The track entry has a pointer to some location, but there's no file there. Now, you may know where they are, but if iTunes can't find them where it expects them, it's not going to play it uh, or be able to keep track of it. Which reminds me of another misconception. You can't trash a file and think that the corresponding track entry in iTunes will also be deleted. If you trash a file, its track entry still exists in iTunes, and iTunes thinks that the track is stored in the trash. And things will seem fine, because iTunes can still play it, until you empty the trash. And then you'll go, what just happened? The file's gone, the track is dead, and it's another reason not to mess around with the files in the media folder. There's something interesting that we've both been noticing recently, that a lot of people don't realize that they can edit multiple tracks. They can edit metadata for multiple tracks. I used to semi-annually put up a blog post reminding people that this is possible. <laughs> I frequently hear from users who bemoan editing each track one at a time, and is there a script that can batch edit tracks? Now, I do have a lot of batch editing scripts, but most of the basic stuff can be done without AppleScript. Yeah, so if you want to edit the metadata of a track, you select a track, you press Command-I or Control-I on Windows, and you get a, a, a dialog which lets you change a whole bunch of tags. You can change the name of a track, you can change the artist name, album, composer, track number, all sorts of stuff, add artwork, lyrics, but that's for a single track. Now, if you want to do it for more than one, as Doug said, you select them all, you press Command-I or Control-I, and you can change the metadata that is common to those tracks. So you can't change the track name. iTunes is assuming you don't want to change a bunch of tracks to have the same name, but you can change the album name, the artist, and, and more. Yeah, the thing about the name, it's important because that's how iTunes identifies files, and you don't want to create problems with same name files in a folder and that sort of thing. So disallowing batch name changes is a good thing. And 
Here's something interesting that when people do that, they'll often find that it takes iTunes a while to write the, the information to the files, and there'll be a dialogue with a progress bar. And this is because iTunes is actually writing the information to the files. The larger your files, the longer it's going to take. The slower your hard drive, the longer it's going to take. If you're on a network drive, it's going to take longer. And some people complain about iTunes being slow, but this is just a limitation of your computer's input-output or your network. Indeed, yes. So iTunes gets a bad rap from a lot of people, and I criticize it a lot. If you read my articles on Macworld, um, I have lots of criticism for Apple as far as iTunes is concerned. But I would say overall, it's a pretty good program. It does a lot of things and it does them well. A lot of people complain that it does too much. Some people even complain that the name iTunes isn't apt anymore because it's not just tunes. Sorry, you know, do, do you say that you dial your phone? If so, you lose that argument. <laughs> there are lots of discussions about breaking iTunes into smaller apps, and people use the example of iOS, which has a separate music app and a videos app, which recently became the TV app, a podcast app, etc. I have some problems with that because some of us remember using an app called iSync on the Mac a bunch of years ago. This goes back 15 years-ish. And it was to sync to different devices, and it was really hellacious to use. iTunes stores references to your music, your movies, your apps, your TV shows, your podcasts, your audiobooks, your... Uh, what else? What else? A bunch of other media files, your ringtones and voice memos and things like that. And the fact that it stores all these things makes absolutely no difference. If it only stored music, iTunes would be exactly the same. It's just a database. What irks people is that the interface makes it really confusing at times because it does have so many different kinds of media. But would you rather have on your computer a music app, a videos app, a podcast app, an apps app, and another app to sync everything to your iOS device? Do you think that would be progress? Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm with you on this. Breaking it up has never made sense to me. There was a bit of a buzz last week when Apple announced that it was rebranding iTunes podcast to Apple podcasts. And it seemed to me every tech headline was, they're dropping iTunes, it's only a matter of time. But um, what I think is really going on is Apple podcasts, that's uh, the largest aggregator of podcasts in the world. And I think they see it as an opportunity to better brand Apple than to debrand uh, iTunes. Well, also, the majority of people listen to podcasts on mobile devices. 72% of our listeners listen on mobile devices. So they're more likely, if they see a, a, an icon to tap to listen to a podcast, they're less likely to be listening to it through iTunes than they are to be listening to it through the podcast app if they're on an Apple device. So it seems to me that that just makes more sense to brand it for the app that you know two-thirds to three-quarters of people are using. But the problem to me of breaking it apart into a bunch of apps is that these apps still have to communicate under the hood. So the only thing, the only advantage that you would have is if you only ever use music, you'd never have to see anything about videos. Although you'd probably have a separate store app. And in that store app, you're going to see videos and apps and all sorts of things. I, I can't see it being useful for average users, even for power users with big libraries. Again, if all you're doing is music or if all you're doing is video, it might mean that you have fewer screens and if you click a button, you might not end up in the wrong place. But in, to have half a dozen apps instead of one app just seems to me not a very good strategy. Well, plus you can always make things that you don't use or don't like just disappear. I always configure iTunes to, oh, it, it looks barely different from iTunes version two. You know, I use the sidebar column browser and the browser window. And frequently 
just the mini player, which has gotten a lot better recently. And and that's it. I switch off media I don't use, features and effects I don't like. I just avoid them. I just I try to keep it simple. I'm going to link in the show notes to an article I wrote not long ago about how you can make a minimalist iTunes interface. If you're not using Apple Music, if you don't want to see the iTunes store, and particularly if you're only using say, music and movies, you can eliminate these things from the the media picker menu. You can eliminate stuff from the sidebar. You can make it very minimalist. And, and you know, I know that there are a lot of people probably among our listeners who use iTunes just for music. It's very popular as an app on a media server. So you might want to do this. You might want to get rid of a lot of the cruft and make the interface a lot simpler. So we hope this has helped give you a better understanding of iTunes. Please feel free to drop a comment on the show page or send us an email through the contact form. Although we prefer the comments so other people can see them and hopefully react to them as well. And if you do have any questions about iTunes, you know, let us know and we'll maybe do another topic about iTunes before the end of the second year of the podcast. (laughs) And now for your amusement and edification, we will present our next track. Kirk, you are looking at a ton of albums this week, right? So my next track this week is not a track. It's a book. Those of us who grew up in the 70s will certainly recognize a number of iconic album covers made by Hypnosis, H-I-P-G-N-O-S-I-S. Notably, the Pink Floyd album covers, the first three Peter Gabriel albums, a whole lot of Led Zeppelin, etc. A book has just been released by Aubrey Powell, one of the members of Hypnosis, called Vinyl Album Cover Art, the Complete Hypnosis Catalog. It's a hardcover book, not very big, not a coffee table book size, 300-odd pages long, and it is essentially a catalog of all of the vinyl albums that they did. Uh, Some of them are one album per page, some of them are four albums per page, they all have legends and they all show names and dates and and things like that. Some of them have more explanations than others, like, you know, some of the Pink Floyd covers, etc., I leafed through this over the weekend, and it's fascinating for a number of reasons. The first is that, wow, I recognize so many of those album covers, and I've owned so many of them at different times. Hypnosis did do albums mostly for certain types of music, rock and progressive rock, the sort of alternative-ish folky music in the early days. Uh, People like Al Stewart and Renaissance and UFO, 10CC, they didn't do punk, they didn't do jazz or classical. They, They actually did one cover for Reverend Gary Davis, which I found surprising. But what's really fascinating is to see, A, the progress from the early covers that they did from 1967 on, the the earliest Pink Floyd. And this is both the outside covers and the inside when there were gatefold albums or the back covers. So what they did through the 70s, again, Pink Floyd, Led Zeppelin, Gabriel, and and then on through the 80s to the end of the LP era. They started out with very creative styles, but limited technical abilities. You know, you can see that some of these things are really just, well, photos cut out and pasted together and overlaid and things. And as they went on, the technology um, increased and they got more sophisticated. Now imagine what they could have done with Photoshop if they had had it back in the day, right? So this is a hardcover book from Thames and Hudson, vinyl album cover art, the complete hypnosis catalog. What about you, Doug? Well, the other day I was in a groovy store in Cambridge. Cambridge is loaded with groovy stores. And they had uh, Herb Alpert and the Tijuana Brass playing over their Bluetooth speaker. 
And I suppose old Herb Alpert stuff is going through another cycle of ironic popularity. So listen, if you like the original Herb Alpert stuff, for whatever reason, you'll definitely like the spin-off band Herb Alpert created called the Baja Marimba Band. Essentially, the same Mexi-tinged pop that the Tijuana Brass was doing, now with more marimba. But here's the thing. The Tijuana Brass was essentially Herb Alpert and the Wrecking Crew, the famous session band. There was no real Tijuana Brass Band, although he did hire guys when he went on on tour. Uh, and once the uh, TJB caught on, Herb goes goldmine and produced the same sort of stuff with session guys as the Baja Marimba Band, although he was not part of that band. The head guy in that band was a fellow by the name of Julius Wechter, who was a marimba and vibe session guy on the Tijuana Brass albums. The marimba band actually lasted longer than the Tijuana Brass. Anyway, growing up, we had a lot of their stuff on vinyl, but most of their releases are now out of print. So I was glad to find their album, Those Were the Days, on Apple Music. And that's the album I'll be listening to. One thing about the Baja Marimba Band is that their album covers usually depicted the band as desperados or banditos wrapped in bandoliers and looking like gold tooth gang in uh, Treasure Sierra Madre. But one thing that I was always amused by, especially as a kid, my father pointed this out. Uh, somewhere on the album covers, you could always find a guy way in the background with his back to the camera, relieving himself of his encumbrances. And that little inside joke helped me realize that they didn't take this music too seriously, and that made it a little more fun, a little less schmaltzy. The Baja Marimba Band, Those Were the Days, is my next track. This has been The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. You can find show notes and links to some of the things we talked about in this and other episodes at thenexttrack.com. There's also a contact form there you can use to send us comments. If you like the show, we hope you'll subscribe in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And please think about giving us a review or rating. We'd appreciate that. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time. <laughs>